We're actually going to take a, a bit of a break from the Gospel of Matthew and our study through that, at least for today and perhaps for the next couple of weeks. And I'm going to ask you to turn to Romans 11 to begin with tonight, today, <laughs> Romans chapter 11, although uh, we're going to look at several passages, six different texts this morning. You can listen if you're not able to find them quickly enough, and uh, I'll try to read them as clearly as I can, and if you can turn to them, then they might be beneficial to you to do that, but we'll look at several. So we'll start in in Romans 11. Let me start this way. Maybe you know the answer to this question. Who made you? God made me, all right? What else did God make? God made all things. Why did God make you and all things? For His own glory. Yeah, good. Some of you were catechized. Uh, or maybe you're familiar with the, first, uh, the answer to the first question of the shorter catechism. What is the chief end or the main purpose of man, mankind? What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Uh, Catechisms are a blessing. Uh, When I was a kid, I studied a sort of modified form of that children's catechism that that I started out with here um, in uh, the curriculum that we used for school. Uh, It's a great thing to have your curriculum for school be founded upon the Word of God have uh, your children taught a worldview that is informed by God's Word. And uh, you can do that in your home by uh, making use of these catechisms. Uh, Somebody asked me not long ago, what's a good catechism? Uh, And if you go online, uh, let me see, the the site is called uh, reformedreader.com org reformedreader.org and there's a catechism there called Catechism for Girls and Boys. It's a great starter catechism if you're thinking about um, doing these questions and answers with your children. I know I'm thankful for them. They gave me a good theological foundation that has stood me in pretty good stead all my life. The question then is what is the glory of God? If we are, if our We are created for the glory of God. If man's chief end is the glory of God, what's the glory of God? In a way, it's hard to describe. It's like describing beauty. You can describe the pulpit. It's solid. It's about, you know, four feet high, five five feet high. I don't know, whatever that is. I always think I'm taller than I am. Uh, you know, it's made out of wood, it's so, so long, it's, it, you know, you can describe something physical, but to describe something beautiful, it's almost like you just say, you know it when you see it, that is beautiful. And, and the glory of God is a little bit like that, in that the glory of God is the manifold display of His excellencies. God's display of His glorious nature in all of its variety, in all of the variety of His his attributes, but not just seeing them, but appreciating them for, for their own sake, for the sake of the worth of God. This is the glory of God. It is God's display of all of His glorious nature, the radiating out of His intrinsic greatness and beauty. And the Catechism says that we're made for that. Most especially God's glory is manifested in the display of His mercy. I say most especially... God's glory is manifested in the display of His mercy. And you know that mercy is kindness toward what kind of people? Undeserving people. God's glory is displayed most 
beautifully in the manifestation of His mercy. And you see this in Romans chapter 11. God is always free in in the demonstration of His mercy. God is not obligated to show mercy to anyone. That's Paul's argument here. There's nobody that seeks after God anyway. But God comes to some and demonstrates a greatness of mercy that overwhelms them. But He is free to show mercy to whomever He will. And whom He will, He hardens in their sin, Paul says. He gives them over. He gives them over to their own reprobate mind. And so, he's anticipating people's questioning that and struggling with that and feeling like God's not fair in that. And he answers that, and I'm not going to take the time to go into all of the answer. It really covers these three chapters, Romans 9 through 11. But he's, he's questioning his hearers. He's really making a statement, but he's asking it in a question form because he's in this sort of um, argument, argumentation phase of this book. And he says, verse 22, now here's the text, Romans eleven twenty-two. what if God desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power. Okay, now let's stop there. That is part of the manifestation of God's glory. Because God's wrath is not, it's not always like our wrath, our anger. Because frankly, our anger is pretty messed up sometimes, isn't it? Our anger is out of control. It's for all the wrong reasons. God's wrath is a just wrath. It is an anger at what is evil and perverted in the world. That is a display of God's glory. It is a glory to be mad at perversion and evil. So God is desirous for His own glory, that is the display of His own wrath and his own power against and over all wrong in the world. God is wanting to display that. He says, what if God, willing to show his wrath and his power, has endured with much patience vessel, what he calls vessels of wrath that are prepared for destruction? That is, those people who are given over to their own resistance of His kindness, who are given over to that and and rightly receive a just retribution to fall upon them. That glorifies God. It glorifies His His justice, His power, and and His righteous wrath. But he goes on, he's not finished, because in verse 23 he says this, that God's display of His righteous wrath is on the way to something else. You see that? He he patiently endures the existence of all of these vessels of wrath for the sake of, in order that He may show the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy which He has prepared beforehand for glory. We learn three things from God about God from this. One is that God's ultimate purpose in view here with His regard to all of the different kinds of humanity, those who reject Him and those who receive Him, His ultimate purpose in view here is the display of His mercy. And the display of His wrath is on the way to displaying His mercy. Because remember what mercy is. Mercy is God's kindness to what kind of people? Undeserving people. That ought to be in the same boat as all of those vessels of wrath. But God, in demonstrating His justice over here, magnifies to a greater degree 
His mercy over here when He sovereignly gives to these people undeserving goodness when they ought to receive His wrath. He is about the display of both His justice and His mercy. And this is what He's teaching us here. But, but that display of His mercy is His ultimate purpose. Secondly, we learn from this that mercy is the ultimate manifestation of God's glory. It is spoken of here as the riches of His glory. Now, we cannot divide God up and say one attribute is greater than another. That one, that His justice is greater than His love, or that His love is greater than... God is one God. You can't go dividing God up in little pieces. But in the working out of God's redemptive purposes in the history of this world, in the history of this universe, His intent is to manifest His glory, the gloriousness of His character, most beautifully in the display of His mercy. That is the riches of His glory. And thirdly, we learn that those who receive that glorious mercy are themselves prepared by God to share in His glory. Notice the end of the verse. He has prepared them beforehand for what? For glory. His own glory will be shared by those people and that is out of His pure mercy. They will share in the eternal, exalted experience of the merciful God being for them. Now that is good news for us. It is good news for us that God is all about His own glory. God is determined to manifest His glorious nature. And that is a good thing. Somebody might argue, well, isn't that a selfish thing? It would be for you and for me, wouldn't it? If I was all about my glory... I said, look at how great I am. No one of us would say, well, that guy's worthy of praise. So how is it that God, being about His own glory, is not likewise a selfish thing? And it's not selfish for at least three reasons. One is that God's determination to manifest His glory is absolutely right because He and only He is the most worthy being of the whole universe. Who else's glory should God seek? Have you ever asked yourself that? If He is going to exalt what's good, what else could He possibly put in that category besides Himself? (laughs) Secondly, this is not a selfish pursuit because God's glory it turns out, is the ultimate good of humble, believing people. Because God's glory, remember, is the manifestation of His character, but especially in the outworking of redemption, His mercy. You'd better be glad that God is absolutely determined to glorify Himself. Because your salvation depends on that. Your salvation is the overflowing benefit of God's determination to glorify Himself. It is, a, it is our own good. And here, here's a passage that, that teaches that. You don't have to turn there, but Isaiah chapter 48 makes the point that God is absolutely about His own glory. In fact, if you have any doubts about that statement, you ought to let this verse just sort of chip away. It's like a hammer blow that just sort of chips away at, at, at our understanding of God until we walk away saying, yeah, God is all about His own glory. Listen to Isaiah 48, verses 9 through 11. God says this, quote, For my own sake I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise... I restrain it from you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, 
And he says it again, for my own sake I do it. For how should my name be be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Isn't it very clear from that? God is about His own glory, but embedded in that is also this truth that that His seeking of His glory, the display of His glory, and especially the display of His mercy and the outworking of redemption is in fact for our good. It becomes our good. God is intensely jealous for His own glory and His glory is the reason for my receiving of mercy. In fact, I often find myself praying this way. Oh God, have mercy on me for the sake of your name. Your name's at stake here. I have called myself by your name according to your promises that I've laid hold on. I go by the name Christian. Everyone looks at me and I tell them, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. Oh God, for the sake of your name, guard your name. Don't let it be profane. Don't let me fall into sin. Don't let me go my own way. Oh Lord, please continue the work that you've begun in me for your name's sake. And God is determined to glorify his name. And because of that, we are blessed with the reception of that mercy. That is, those who are humble and repentant people. And thirdly, God's determination to seek His own glory is not selfish because God's glorying in Himself is not a kind of a staring-at-yourself-in-the-mirror narcissism. Because God exists as a triune being. God is not merely one. God is three in one. So the Father, here's the way it works. The Father is so delighted in His Son that He is determined to show Him off. And the Son is delighted to glory in His Father and the wisdom and the providence and the kindness and the holiness of His Father. And the Spirit delights to bear the glory of both the Father and the Son. So there is this communion of of delight and glory within the triune God Himself that is not, as it would be for us, a, a selfish kind of glory, but always a giving kind of glory. God's glory from from the very beginning, in His nature, before creation, not talking about simply His glory in making, but His glory in Himself is in fact a giving glory. And so for that reason, His glory is a beautiful, selfless thing while He is determined to glorify Himself in every regard. Why were you made? For the glory of God. Now that glory, in terms of our salvation, is mediated to us through His Son in the Gospel. God's glory in the outworking of redemption is mediated to us. It's brought to us. We are brought into fellowship with the glory of God through His Son. Turn to Colossians chapter 1 for a moment. Colossians 1 and verse 15. Or you can listen if you can't find it. Colossians 1, beginning in verse 15. This is speaking of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And it says here that He is the image of the invisible God. Stop there just for a moment. He is the image of the invisible God. Here is a God who is not visible to us. In fact, that invisibility stands by metonymy for all of the 
the ways that we are not that God is not accessible to us. In other words, we can't not only not only can we not see God physically, we can't access God from where we are. We can't reach up and access God. We cannot know God except as he has chosen to reveal himself and he's chosen to reveal himself most fully and most completely in his son. Jesus Christ is the embodiment of the invisible God. That's what he said. In him, we come to know God. He is in the likeness of God because he is God. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Again, which doesn't mean that God created Jesus first. And then Jesus, in turn, created everything else. There are some heresies that teach exactly that. Do you know that? Jesus is the first created thing. It's an ancient heresy, and it's got modern proponents. This is teaching that Christ, in terms of the creation, is the eldest son, as it were. The, 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 the one in whom all of the others connected, become sons of God. He is the firstborn in terms of his preeminence, his priority of place for all of the family of God. We can all be called children of God or sons and daughters of God because of Jesus Christ, our relation with Jesus Christ, who is the firstborn of all creation. He is the firstborn, the preeminent one of all creation, for by him... All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created, listen to this, verse 16, all things were created through Him. So who made the world? God made the world. How did God make the world? God made the world through His Son, by His Spirit. You know, the triune God is acting here. God made the world through Christ, And then look at the end of the verse, and what? And for Him. God made the world through Christ and for Christ. God is intent on glorifying His Son, and for that reason He made the world. And the world and the outworking of God's redemption in the world brings unique glory to Jesus Christ who mediates the glory of God to us. This is where the glory of God is embodied in the person of Christ. All things were made by Him and for Him. And He, Jesus Christ, is before all things, not only in time, of course, but in preeminence and predominance. That's the idea here. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church, especially those people He is their head. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. So he's the preeminent one in that regard. And that in order that in everything, he might be preeminent. In everything that he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether in heaven, excuse me, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. Through Him, God reconciles the world to Himself. That is, through Christ and the shedding of His blood. Jesus, God's glory, okay, so this is where we started, God's glory is mediated to us through His Son. In terms of the, of the created world, The glory of God is mediated through His, that comes to them through the channel of His Son. And that is the great plan of God for the world, to reconcile it to Himself, to reunite, here's the plan, to reunite God and man, the way it was in the Garden of Eden. The reunification will come, He says here, through the person of God of His Son. The reunification of God and man will come in the person of His Son. 
Ephesians chapter 1 goes on and adds to this. If you want to flip over there for a moment, Ephesians 1. This is uh, familiar because we looked at it a few years ago in great detail. This is a great passage. If you are looking for a a section of the Bible to memorize, you ought to memorize uh, Ephesians 1 beginning in verse 3. This this, uh, praise to the Lord, this blessing of God. Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He says, God has blessed us. Now look at, look at the emphasis of this passage. Here's what I want you to see. Verse 3, Blessed be God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things after the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. And in Him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in Him, We're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. What's the theme? Did I make it obvious enough? (laughs) Say, Say it in two words. Anybody know? In Him? In Him. I think that's it. What is He saying? God has blessed us and every blessing. You talk about election. You talk about redemption. You talk about adoption. You talk about you know what all the all the blessings that he listed here, the giving of the Holy Spirit. All of these blessings are all in Christ. They're all all of God's glorious mercies are mediated through His Son. Especially the idea that God in Christ has a plan for the fullness of time to unite everything that was broken to unite what was ripped apart by sin. That is the fellowship between God and man. And because of that, the togetherness, the wholeness of body and soul that's ripped apart by death, the brokenness that we see in our world around us, broken homes, broken relationships, broken uh, relations between countries and peoples. God's plan is to restore all of that to wholeness in Christ Jesus. God has planned to glorify His Son by bringing mankind into union and communion with Himself once again, which is our greatest possible good. And He plans to do that through His Son. God's purpose is to bring humanity into union and communion with himself. Hey, what is God all about in the working out of redemption? That's it in a nutshell. Bringing humanity into union and communion with God. Let me say a little bit of something about that. When you got married, y'all remember when you got married? You stood there, you made those vows, forsaking all others. I will give myself only to you till death do part us. Right, you made that vow before Almighty God and before all your and what happened? You were united with your husband. You were united with your wife. A one-time deal. Right? You were you were brought into union with him or her. But then you live out the rest of your life together. And what happens now is that union forms the foundation for communion which is a sharing of life in common, of it intentionally living out our lives together, of 
sharing with one another, of giving and laying our lives down for each other, of, of learning the joy of what it is to get to know this person as the years go by. Communion. That's what, that's what we're talking about here. And, and I can't think of a better picture than marriage for what we're talking about is God's plan for all of time. To draw the world, the whole universe, and particularly humanity, into union and communion with Him. God and man were once together, but sin came in and separated them. Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden. Israel was cut off from her groom, her God, but God plans to reunite His people with Himself. Isaiah 45 says, Your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is His name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth He has called. For the Lord has called you, the Lord says to His people, I have called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, when she, uh, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger, for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love. I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. That's God's plan for His people, to reunite them to Himself. The outworking of redemption over the course of all of human history is God's bringing humanity, a new humanity, into union with Him. Let that just blow your mind for a minute. United with God. Now, you can, you, that's, that's such a magnificent thought that you can actually become heretically overboard. <laughs> uh, wrong with it, I should say. Not overboard is probably not the right word. And I'll talk about that in a minute. But union with God, that results in communion with God. Christianity isn't about a set of beliefs only or a set of laws that you have to keep. What is Christianity fundamentally? It is union and communion with the God of glory. That's Christianity. If anybody tells you there's another kind of Christianity, it's a sad excuse for Christianity. Christianity is union and communion with God. Now, how is this going to happen? How will God and man be brought together again? I'm going to ask you to turn to another passage, Matthew chapter 1. <clears throat> Matthew 1 and verse 18. Now here, here's where we get to the part where you say, oh, now I get it, Christmas, right? Matthew 1. Now the birth of Jesus Christ, verse 18, took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. <laughs> and her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, he resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will conceive a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. God saves, Jehovah saves, for he will save his people from their sins. And then Matthew says, All these things took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name. And there it is, isn't it? Emmanuel, which means... God with us. How is God going to work out this reuniting of this huge rift that's taken place between Himself and His creation? He's going to do it right here through this baby born in a manger who is fully God and yet fully man. In Him, in this person, his plan turns out to be a person. And in the person, God and men 
God and man are brought together. The Council of Chalcedon, in summarizing all of the Bible's teaching about Jesus and his nature, said it this way. He is truly God and truly man. And Orthodox believers ever since have said, Amen. He is. It's a mystery we can't fully wrap our minds around perhaps, but that's the testimony of the Word of God. He is truly God and truly man, of one substance with the Father as regards His Godhead, and at the same time of one substance with us as regards His manhood, like us in all respects apart from sin, in two natures, God and man, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation, the distinction of the natures being in no way annulled by the union, but rather the characteristics of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person and subsistence, not as parted or separated into two persons, not two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten God, the Word the Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, you have this incredible union of these two natures, God and man, brought together, and He becomes, in one sense, the paradigm for what God plans to do for all of humanity. God came down in the person of Christ and did for us what we failed to do ourselves, that is to come into full communion with Him. So He stooped down to us. God, who has only and always had a divine, the divine nature, came to possess and continues now to possess human nature as well not by way of losing any of his godness, but by assuming to himself humanity. And that humanity then was glorified in a way that Adam's human nature never fully experienced. So Adam and humanity was supposed to offer to God personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience But mankind failed to do that, brought a division within himself and between himself and his God. But God in his mercy sent a new man, a second Adam, who lived a vicarious humanity for all of his people, and he continued in that personal, perfect communion with the Father. And so God exalted him. God exalted him to a place of perpetual communion with himself, God and man, together in the person of Jesus Christ. That's why Christmas is not just a kind of a little story we throw in because it's uh, kind of fun to do something with lights in the middle of the darkest time of year. It is central to God, the outworking of God's plan of salvation. God's plan is a person. His plan to unite Everything that was ripped apart is centered in that person. So the good news for humanity is not merely a plan, it is a person. One author put it this way, listen to this, I thought this was well said. When the church loses sight of the essential saving reality of being truly joined to Jesus Christ, it runs the risk of an unintentional, subtle dichotomizing of the person and the work of Jesus Christ in which salvation is portrayed in rather abstract, extrinsic, impersonal terms. The effect is that salvation begins to be objectified, viewed as the reception of various benefits or gifts of Christ's work that can be received apart from a reception of the living, crucified, resurrected Christ. Christ for us, apart from Christ in us. Without a proper emphasis on our union with Christ, 
our understanding of salvation can devolve into a gift that Christ gives rather than the gift that Christ is. What is the gospel? The gospel is Christ. The gospel is, behold your God. Here He is in the person of His Son, mediated God's mercy in His glory, mediated to us in Jesus Christ. In Christ alone is our hope of communion with God forever. This comes to everyone who is united by Christ, united, excuse me, by faith to Jesus Christ. That is, to everyone who has been born again. The birth, I'll say it this way, the birth of Jesus Christ is the objective ground of our union with God. The union of God and man. The new birth of the believer is the subjective realization of that union. To say it another way, all right, in case you lost me, did you lose me? Jesus' incarnation is what made the union of God and man possible. Your regeneration, your being born again, is what makes that union actual. So don't think that this union between God and man is going to apply universally to all humanity. It applies to all humanity as they are united to Jesus Christ by regeneration. I ask you then, have you been born again? Do you, have, have you come to a possession of Christ and Christ to a possession of you? Have, have you had some assurances from the Lord? Some, some real Bible assurances that this, this grace of your union with Christ has, has been, that, you're, that you have experienced that? If you sit here today and you say, I don't know, I don't know, I'm not sure, but I want that. I know I'm a sinner. And I say to you, ask, call out, cast yourself upon His mercy. And I've yet to meet, I've yet to meet someone who does that sincerely. Out of his own, out of the grace of God, he's come to God humbly, confessing of his sins, repentant, and believing. And God says, "No." Now there are plenty of people that God says no to. We're warned not to be like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal, his birthright for a little bit of pleasure. In that same context, he says, don't live like that. Don't fail to obtain the grace of God. Beware lest any of you be hardened. You give yourselves over to sexual immorality, he mentions in that passage, or other sins. Because he says, in the end, you remember what happened with Esau? Esau came saying, no, 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 I I changed my mind. I want the blessing now. And dad said, it's too late. So, you know, there's a warning there against becoming those kinds of people. But I'm saying that whoever comes in true spirit-wrought repentance and faith, they're received. That glory of God in the gospel comes to us in the person of Christ. And when you are in Christ, uh, I'm sorry, another passage, I should mention this too, because this is the clarification that I mentioned earlier, and then we'll draw it to a close. This, is a, this will blow your mind. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 4 says that, you don't have to look at it, I mean, you can, but uh, it says that be, through the promises of God, we become partakers of the divine nature. Partakers of the divine nature. Remember, Jesus has a divine nature and a human nature. How in the world is it, can it be said that we become partakers of the divine nature? And there are some people who take this to the point of a false doctrine, a heretical doctrine called divinization, and say that 
humans will become gods, right? We're going to be partakers of the divine nature. Humans will become gods. This is not the teaching of the Scripture. There is always a distinction between creator and creature. We do not come to possess God's nature in and of ourselves, but rather in union with Christ, who possesses the divine nature as well as human. In other words, we don't come to be partakers of the divine nature directly. We come to be partakers of the divine nature mediated to us through the person of Jesus Christ. It is in union with Christ, who is himself fully God, that we come to have fellowship, union, and communion with the living, the one living and true God. It is in the person of Christ, and it is in union with Him. There is another passage I'm not going to turn to for sake of time. It just really glories in this intercommunion between God and His Son and those who belong to His Son. And it's in John 17, and it would be great for you to take that up and go read that this afternoon. John 17, especially going from verses 20 to 23. But here is, here's how we're going to have to bring it to a close, friends. Listen to this. The gospel is Christ living out His life in us. In Christ, we are able to live the life of God. Again, not independently of Christ, not as divine creatures that we have become somehow divine, divine ourselves, but in Christ, we live out the life of God. Do you understand that? That as a Christian... You are living out God's life in the world. That you are living it out in union with God. This is why, this is why Jesus can talk about his followers as an extension of himself. He's living out his life through his followers. And in Christ, in union with Christ, we are living out the life of God. And this is an amazing thing, so that there are those, listen to this, there are those days, or those moments, or those hours, when we are fully possessed by the Son of God through His Spirit, and we come to enter a life that is 100% free of sin, of anxiety, of fear, to be filled 100% to the brim with love and joy and peace and gentleness and goodness and faithfulness. We're enjoying in those moments the very life of the Trinitarian God. The very life that God has within Himself. That perfectly complete overflowing life of love and joy. God's plan is not merely to save people from a lot of torment in hell. That, that, that's, a, that's a part of it. God's plan is to bring people into union and communion with Himself so that His life will be experienced by them, that they will come to share in the life of God, which is all glory. I mean, it is, it is, Jesus said it this way in John 17, that we might come to know the joy and the glory that he had with the Father before the world began, that we might come to have an experience of that. And Christians can have an experience of that. They can. Now, our, our trouble is those moments are all too fleeting for us, aren't they? I said those days or those moments or those hours. Sometimes it's five minutes, and that's all we've got of what we feel like is unbroken communion. And even that, we know, is, is tainted by, by still the remnants of our flesh. But as you live out your Christian life and you grow in communion with God, you will be able to experience greater, a greater sense of communion with God that manifests itself in all of those expressions of the Holy Spirit. This is what you're called to. This is what God wants to save you to, into His own life. We only wish that those experiences were more frequent and more prolonged and more consistent. But I want to point you in closing to the consummation of that union 
that is still yet to come. One day that union between God and His creation will be complete and unbroken. That union will be consummated. Right now it is, as it were, um, in, engaged, but in time that union will be consummated. You know how the Bible ends? It ends with a wedding. It ends with a wedding supper. And you know what happens after the wedding supper? The bride and groom enter the wedding chamber and to enter into the bliss of their union and all of eternity of an enjoyment of the presence of God. That's what believers have to look forward to. A growing experience of communion with God now in and through Jesus Christ, Christ living in them, and the eternal experience of that for all the ages to come in an unbroken way. The thing that you long for now, the thing that is so you feel like is so inconsistent, that enjoyment of God will belong to the people of God forever and ever. And Revelation chapter 21 that we read earlier describes that, where there is, where in the end, here's how the, here's how the end is spoken of. God Himself comes down and He is with His people and God is in their midst. There's an unbroken communion and on and on that goes. And when God and man are brought together, bodies and souls fly back together. Boom! (laughs) And that'll happen someday. The dead in Christ will rise. It's It's like you can't keep the bodies and souls apart anymore. They're like, you know, magnets and just Christ is... The, the presence of Christ and the communion of, of, of our life with God. God is life and, and you just you can't keep those apart anymore. And all that's broken is put back together. All of this is the consummation of our union. So, glory, brothers and sisters, glory in Jesus Christ. Make your boast in Jesus. Talk much about Jesus He is the plan of God. God's plan is to unite everything together in His Son. Your eternal good is God's determination to glorify His Son. You get the benefit. So glory in Jesus. Glory in the Son of God. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we rejoice in Jesus Christ and in His name we glory before You. He is worthy of your glory. You are worthy of the praise and the worship of all creation. And Lord, we pray that, you, that, that we may be a part, an earnest, heartfelt part of, the, of glorying in Christ. And uh, we rejoice in what you have done to bring us together with you for all eternity through your Son. To Jesus be eternal praise and glory forever and ever. Amen.